This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We talked earlier about running into a possum in the shadows or an opossum. Still going to find that out. Opossum, possum. But they uh, they can they can be a little nasty looking. They've got this rat tail and they've got these sharp teeth and this long snout and there isn't hair on every part of their body. Somehow Salt Haven Wildlife, though, has taken pictures of possums and they've made them look actually cute. I have no idea how they've done this. But they have been raising some possums and we're going to raise our level of education about these things because they could be really, really useful going forward if we continue to have this many deer ticks around. Please welcome the CEO of Salt Haven Wildlife Rehabilitation and Education Center, Brian Salt. Brian, don't know how you've done it. You can even make possums look cute. <laughs> yeah, well, when they get big, they look like the rats from hell. But when they, you know, they're, they're young... <laughs> They are pretty cute. They look like little Disney characters. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to describe it, little Disney characters. So the first thing we've got to ask is, opossum, possum, are these two <laughs> different things? No, they're the same. Actually, you know, the name opossum stems from, it's kind of an anglicized version of the Algonquian native uh, name for them, and um, that, which means white dog. And it, it's it, the possum without the O is just kind of a slang version of opossum. So the, I guess the correct version is opossum. So the correct way to say the name of this creature we're going to be talking more about is opossum. All right, so it's not necessarily a silent O. <laughs> That's right. And, but you could use possum. Everybody knows what you're talking about, especially if you're down south. They all call them possums down there. And, but they're the same thing. They're the same thing, very same thing. Okay, and they are little creatures, again, with a tail that has no hair on it. Their snout is long. It doesn't have any hair on it. They seem to have these really jagged, sharp teeth when they open their mouths when they're adults. As Brian says, when they're young, they can look like Disney characters. Uh, so everything has uh, its own redeeming quality. When we're talking about what possums do, uh, you've come up with uh, a couple of things that are really important, especially if we're talking about deer ticks. How do possums mm -hmm. and deer ticks go together? Well, I, I'm not so sure that they go hunting for, for ticks. You know, I think what happens is, is that they're walking through the grass. The, the ticks end up jumping on them, and they are really clean animals. So when they're cleaning themselves off, they probably eat the ticks, too. And uh, but they'll eat, Mike. They'll eat like four thousand ticks in a season. So, you know, if you got lots of possums in your backyard, you don't have a whole lot of ticks. That's for sure. Of any kind, not only deer ticks, but they'll eat ticks of any kind. Okay. And they're and they're you know they have that very long snout as you as you described it because they have more teeth in their in their mouth than any other mammal in North America. Fifty teeth in their mouth. So. In fact, when we feed them, the babies, we have to tube feed because they don't suck very well on a nipple. So what does that mean? How, how do you do that? Well, we put a tube right down into their stomach and with, uh, with a syringe on the end, and we pump food right into them that way. Wow. We, you know, when we first started doing possums years ago, nine times out of ten they wouldn't survive, and we couldn't figure out how do they do it in mom's pouch. And then one time we had to 
uh, we brought in a possum that had been hit by a car, and it had to be euthanized. And as we were taking the babies out of the pouch, we had an epiphany. We realized that when the babies grab onto mom and they're nursing on her, the teat goes right down into their stomach, it elongates. And we thought, well, of course. And so after that, we started tube feeding them and uh, doing the same type of thing that mom would do. And we turned that mortality rate right around now. Nine out of ten will survive. How brilliant is that? We're talking with Brian Salt, who is the CEO at Salt Haven Wildlife Rehabilitation and Education Center. And you've had how many possums with you this year that you've just released back into the wild? I think we just released five back into the wild a short while ago. They are absolutely amazing little creatures. You know, they have this ability, they have opposing thumbs, just like you and I. Not too many animals in the animal kingdom have that. You know, primates do, panda bears do, koala bears, but that's about it. But these little guys not only have opposing thumbs on their front paws, but they also have them on their back feet, too, so they can climb just about anything. And if that wasn't enough, they have this prehensile tail, like an elephant's trunk, that they can pick up something as small as a piece of paper with that tail. They're really incredible. And they'll have, well, get a load of this for your, your female listening audience, gestation period, 13 days. Now, how's that? <laughs> 13 days? 13 days. And they, what they, they're, they're born, they crawl up into the pouch, and they latch on to mom, and there they stay for about two months. And at about three months, they're ready to go. So, but they're born like a little grain of rice, you know, like same thing as kangaroos and and uh, so that's pretty remarkable. You, you know, another neat thing about these these little guys is that they are immune to poisonous snake bites. They have this peptide in their blood that virtually neutralizes the venom from snakes. Uh, that's pretty incredible. And for that reason, they're being studied for antidotes for snake bites for people. And here we thought they sometimes got into backyards, lurked in the shadows, scared the you know the scared the hair off your head and uh, and that would be about it now look at what we're learning we're talking with brian salt ceo at salt haven wildlife rehabilitation and education center brian would it be a normal occurrence for you to get possums who needed help oh sure yeah we get calls every week for possums pretty much and there's some of them need help some of them don't but they're uh, they're pretty remarkable all the way around and, you know, when people say, well, you know, they play possum, they're not playing. When they get really upset, I think their blood pressure goes up so high, they just pass right out. They go, they go into a catatonic state. Their mouth is open. Their tongue hangs out. They emit this awful-smelling stuff from their glands, and it's, they look and smell for all intents and purposes like they've been dead for a while. And they can, they can maintain that state for anywhere up to six hours. And even if another animal is chewing on them, the catatonic state doesn't allow them to feel pain. So, you know, in the wild, animals don't normally like to feed on other dead animals because of bacteria and things like that, with the exception of vultures, maybe. But So it works quite well for them. So when we talk about possums playing dead, it's not just a look. It's a whole lot more than that. That's, that sounds oh, yeah. very, very intricate and certainly something that might be really effective Oh, it's very effective, and it helps them to, you know, because another animal will look at them and go, I ain't eating that. It smells awful. And they, so off they go, and, you know, an hour later, the possum wakes up and goes, hmm, okay, I guess it's okay to go now. 
Are they something that will be in residential areas like raccoons and skunks? Do they kind of fall into that category? Yeah, Mike, it, it, as with all wildlife, you know, it's really the food that's going to attract them. And they love fruit, so fruit that's fallen off a tree somewhere or in garbage cans. Um, you know, if, if possums or any wild animal, for that matter, is a, is a problem or a challenge for you, then usually the answer is you take the food away, you take the problem away too. And that doesn't matter if we're talking bears or possums or raccoons for that matter. It's, and the problem usually isn't that the, the garbage is letting the, or the, the possums getting into the garbage. That's not the problem. The problem is the garbage is letting the possums in and attracting them. So we just have to use our noodle. We can outsmart these little guys as smart as they are. We can outsmart them by just finding ways to secure our garbage a little bit better, and they'll move on. Really, if you make something hard to break into, it's kind of like a human. If you make your house hard to break into, chances are they'll pick another house. Exactly. It's a good analogy, actually. Wow. Well, Brian, thank you for the lesson on opossums, if we want to be actually factual, and possums, if uh, if we want to sound cool talking about them. Really appreciate the time. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Mike. You have a good day. You too. That is Brian Salt, CEO at Salt Haven Wildlife Rehabilitation and Education Center. Possums, yes, and that does stand for everything. You don't want anything getting into your garbage. Isn't that always fun when you go out in the morning and your garbage can's been tipped over by something and you got to pick up all the remnants? It's your stuff, but somehow it seems awful, you know? So it's it's about securing the old garbage can. I can't believe that they actually emit a smell along with playing dead. Let's talk about, in a way, the impact of COVID-19 on our country and on our government. Because if we're going to look, let's look at Ontario. All right, let's let's look at Ontario and not just the current government, but governments to come. How long could it take to balance the budget? Well, we haven't been able to do that math, but fortunately we know somebody who has. Please welcome to London Live the interim Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Jay Goldberg. Jay, great to have you with us. How are things? Things are well. So, more math, and this math might be bigger math than uh, we can fit into a calculator. If we're going to look at balancing the budget, which is always one of those things that governments like to at least put a target date on, right? They they like to say, well, if, if we have everything go well, we'll be able to balance the budget by this date. That's That's usually a big deal, isn't it? It's usually a big deal, and uh, as you're alluding to, there's a new report out from the Parliamentary Budget Officer that says if you look at the governments collectively in Ontario, so if you look at the provincial government and municipal governments, and you look at their combined finances, uh, they won't balance the budget for a single year through 2095. In other words, there's the next 74 years, there's no expectation that Ontario's governments are going to balance the budget. Till 2095, 74 years, 
No wonder these numbers are getting big. Okay, so let's break this down so that we understand this. In other words, it probably won't be an election platform issue for anybody. We're not going to see the the conservatives say, hey, guess what? We're going to balance the budget by 2095. I don't think they'll bother saying that. That may not come up. So let's break down what this means. How would the parliamentary budget committee or parliamentary budget officer come up with that? So essentially what they did is look at the trajectory of the provincial government, but also look at municipal governments here in Canada. So the Ford government has said that they're hoping to balance the budget by 2029, the provincial budget. Um, But according to the Canadian Constitution, the province is responsible for municipal spending. And if any municipality in the province, and we have 444 of them, uh, were to go bankrupt, uh, the provincial government would be on the hook for paying those bills. So what the PBO said is, well, we should look at the numbers, not just at the provincial level, but also municipalities across the province. Uh, and the reality is municipalities like Toronto, Toronto's borrowing $1 billion this year to finance capital projects. And so what the PBO says, if you look at the province and you factor in municipal spending, there will be no balanced budget till 2095. And by then, we, Ontario's governments will have racked up $5 trillion of debt. Huh. That's another big number. We're talking with Jay Goldberg, who is the Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, could we look at this and at least say this is worst-case scenario, or is this just by the numbers that we're sitting with right now? This is actually just the numbers that we're sitting with right now. Um, And so essentially, if we want to get to a balanced budget anywhere before then, uh, we're going to have to look at some serious changes, whether it be uh, reductions in uh, government spending, uh, you know, more prudent uh, spending going forward. Uh, So we're going to have to look at that. Uh, And again, a lot of the problem is actually going to be with Ontario's municipalities, because municipalities like London and other cities, they have to balance their operating budget, which is day-to-day expenses, but they don't have to balance their capital budget. So cities uh, borrow hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Toronto's borrowing $1 billion this year to finance infrastructure projects. And so actually the numbers in Ontario are being brought down or made worse by the fact that cities all across the province, every single one of them is running a deficit because they're all using uh, borrowing to finance their infrastructure projects. Jay, could the Ontario government just say, no, the store is closed, the bank is closed, no, we can't give you money for these infrastructure projects anymore, or is that going to create a lot of other issues? Well, it might create other issues. Uh, it's interesting. Here in Canada, we have, you know, the federal level, the provincial level. Well, municipalities aren't actually given any constitutional powers here in Canada. They're created by the province. Uh, the provincial government can do effectively what they want. You saw a couple of years ago, the Ford government just decided that Toronto City Council should be cut in half. And so it was. And, and Toronto really couldn't object to that constitutionally. So the Ford government or any provincial government could certainly change the rules. And one thing they could do would be to say, you know, we're not comfortable with cities borrowing money anymore to finance infrastructure projects. We think you need to have an all-around balanced budget. That would be a game changer in terms of making sure that we don't have massive debt going forward. 
but it would be uh, definitely a challenge for municipalities to figure out how to adjust from that. We are talking right now with Jay Goldberg, who is the Inter Ontario Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. How do you think the Ontario government or someone who might hope to run this province one day might look at these numbers be enough to make most people say, you know, I was going to run for premier, but, uh, but then I saw that number and I decided it call me in 2095. Well, I certainly think that there are different approaches that we could uh, see from the government. The Ford government, uh, understandably over the last year or two has been, generally concerned with dealing with the pandemic and and cities all across the province have had to do the same um i think now the tough the tough work will come now that uh, hopefully we begin to exit the pandemic uh, we have uh, finances that need fixing here in the province and so if we're not going to balance the budget for decades under the status quo that doesn't mean we can't balance the budget with some changes and so i think going forward it's going to be very important for the Ford government to think about how can we change our habits here uh, moving forward to make sure that we're not spending um, that we're not spending money that we don't have. And interestingly, one of the numbers that's included in the PBO report, they're saying that by the year 2095, Ontario's governments will be spending 180 billion dollars a year on interest alone. So a heck of a lot of this debt is actually just coming from making interest payments on the debt rather than actual uh, government spending. And so that's a major point of concern as well. Yeah, that's that's an ugly side of things. And yet we've seen government after government after government. I mean, some spending does have to happen and you have to, you know, no one's been able, we've been talking today on the show about inventing the new mousetrap. No one's been able to invent, invent a new mousetrap in terms of government spending. You can hack and slash at certain things. Healthcare always gets it. Education always gets it. Do you think there's, you know, the inevitable is more hacking and slashing at, at both of those great big portfolios or can somebody hopefully invent a better mousetrap? Well, I think the Ford government, they've actually recognized that part of the problem has to do with um, paychecks for people who work uh, in the public sector, in the government sector. We have um, roughly half of Ontario's budget is simply spent on paying the salaries of everybody who works for the government or government-affiliated organizations. And so the Ford government, about two years ago, brought in legislation that said, um, you know, starting from now, uh, people who work for the in the public sector can only get a 1% annual raise. We're capping raises at 1% because uh, we saw lots of examples of you know, previous governments not wanting to have to engage in tough negotiations with unions and giving significant pay increases. So a huge part of our deficit problem is actually um, paying the wages of those who work in the public sector. So the Ford government said, well, we're going to limit it to 1% a year for the next three years. So that's been a good first step. But I think the government's going to have to go further in terms of extending that timeline, perhaps looking at freezing instead of just, uh, you know, giving 1% wage increases. Uh, Because those who work in the public sector, uh, those who work for the government here in Ontario, are actually making roughly 10% more than people who work in the private sector. So if we find a way to balance that out, um, you know, you very well could find a way to get back to balance in Ontario. 
Well, that's that's a tall order because it's asking those who are making certain salaries to stop making those salaries or those positions to be paid slightly less, and that's been talked about a lot. I don't know, Jay, has that ever happened? Uh, it happened a little bit in the 1990s with the Harris government. Um, I mean, frankly, what we could even see here in the province would be just a decision to freeze wages. Um, so to say, look, we're not going to cut your wages, but effectively we're going to have to freeze them for the next few years because, um, you know, we need the extra revenue to go towards paying down the deficit. And the reality is that if people who are working for government are already making 10% more than the rest of us, then asking them to take a freeze, so not even a reduction in wages, but a freeze over a few period of a few years, um, you know, that, that could be a quite reasonable way to try to tackle this challenge. Well, we'll see what happens because I don't think any politician wants to grab the date 2095 and claim that they're going to make plans lasting through to 2095. Jay, thanks for breaking down the math for us and the story for us. Really appreciate the time. Thank you, and sorry to deliver the negative news. <laughs> yeah, but you do it with such a, a nice way of doing it, so we appreciate that. <laughs> there's, there's such a kind demeanor to how you deliver this for us. Have well, a great day, you. Jay. It's, it's great to join Take you. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. That is Jay Goldberg. He is the Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So what we were breaking down, and if you missed it, we'll make it available later on at 980cfpl.ca and on the Curious Cast Network. But what we were breaking down was a report that came from the parliamentary budget officer that said because of some of the added money that's being given to municipalities, you're not going to see the Ontario government able to balance the budget until 2095. And you would think, okay, well, how's that going to work? But it looks at how things are right now. So we asked Jay, is this worst case scenario? I said, no, this is just kind of using the numbers that we have. The province is currently running $33.1 billion with the debt at, or the deficit is $33.1 billion and the debt is at $450 billion. And then you look, the city of Toronto right now is running a $1 billion deficit. You can't let cities run deficits and therefore you have to kind of cover that off. We've dealt with that around here that that was, that was an early conversation in the pandemic. The idea that no, municipalities cannot, you have to balance the books at the end of the year. Well, who helps to balance the books? It's kind of like if you're dealing with mom and dad, where if the kids are trying to get themselves a mortgage and they can't right now, mom and dad can step in and say, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you a little bit of help there on that down payment or we'll fill in if you're saving for school, whatever's not there, we'll kind of fill in the extra. That kind of thing goes on. So in this case, they project, and it still doesn't sound like it's real, they have a 74-year forecast in the way that things have gone based on the numbers now. What could help? A freeze on public sector wages. We'll see how that conversation goes if it has to come up. And then finding ways to spend better. Well, every government finds ways to spend better in some areas, but then not quite in others. And then the government will come in and spend a lot. And then another one will run on a platform of, we're not going to spend anything. We've gone back and forth like this. If it was that easy, 
we wouldn't have debt. We wouldn't have a deficit. We wouldn't have a projection that says nothing's balanced until 2095. It's not easy. That's the ultimate problem. Let's talk some Olympics before we close out the show. I know we've been talking Olympics throughout the show, but it's the Olympics. There have been so many things happening. Here, let's do a quick check. We've got to find this out. You want your life to take a huge leap, a huge bound, kind of like a kind of like a long jumper coming down the runway and then taking off. You want to have that feeling on a day-to-day basis? Have your daughter win gold in the 100-meter butterfly. Please welcome to London Live, Susan McNair, who is the mom of Maggie McNeil, gold medal winner in the 100-meter butterfly on Sunday night, our time. Susan, how have the last 36 hours been for you? Oh, they've been, um, they've been pretty exciting, that's for sure. Um, had a first sleepless night, I must say, or at least slept pretty late, but... Other than that, um, I mean, we're here in Canada, right? So our li- our lives are going on, but they're interspersed with uh, with uh, some calls from people like you, actually, <laughs> and, some, <laughs> and some and uh, some important calls from Maggie as well. Well, you have been able to speak with her. That's one of the things that she had mentioned to us when she talked to Global News Radio yesterday, that she hadn't had a chance to talk with her family. So what was that conversation like when it finally happened? Well, we heard from her. Uh, we had a really short call, I must say, right after, but we couldn't hear her in the pool, and she couldn't hear us, so it lasted about 10 seconds. But the first real big call was um, was in the middle of the night, our time, and we had a good long talk to her. And, and at that point in time, she was sitting with Kylie Moss, and they were having a laugh, and she had the gold medal around her neck and uh, eating a big bowl of ice cream. So she seemed to be quite content. And then yesterday we had a really long talk to her, and... Uh, and we all chatted, and she and her sister Clara had a good long talk, and they were um, they were kidding one another and laughing and and uh, talking as if it was good, it was the good old times. That's for sure. Maggie McNeil's mom, Susan, joining us as we talk about what it's like to have your daughter win Olympic gold. That's that's not bad. Celebrate with some ice cream, and you know that's that's it has to be a quiet, muted celebration. I know because of all the restrictions that are going on, but I think most of us would pick that as one of the potential ways to celebrate something big in life. Now, in terms of having it sink in, do you think it has sunk in for Maggie? Um, you know, I, she said, I, I, I read on something that she had said that it hadn't yet sunk in. She was still back trying to, trying to process the, the silver medal having sunk in, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the relay, which I know she was thrilled about. So, you know, I think it'll take some time until she figure out, figures out the implications of it on her life. And, but for right now, she, uh, I think she's weathering it through the best she can. She's excited about it. And I, I think she's starting to refocus on her last swim, which will be the, uh, the medley relay on um, on Saturday on Saturday night. And you look at the all-star team that Canada has there. Penny Alexiak is going to swim tonight in the final of the women's 200-meter freestyle, and she's expected to swim, obviously, the freestyle length in in that. And then Kylie Moss, who you mentioned, backstroke. Maggie with the butterfly. It's an incredible team for Team Canada. So can't wait for that. That will come up on this coming weekend, will it not, our time? 
That's right, it will. You know, one of the things I've really noticed from Maggie on this on this trip is just uh, how happy she is. You know, she's, she said that the team itself is a huge amount of fun, you know. Um, she said one of the, real, the reasons the real life is so fun is because everybody likes one another so well and they're having a good time together. And I can tell that they are. She's, uh, you know, they're playing cards together a little less now because everybody's swims have really kicked into gear. But um, she said it's, it's just a whole lot of fun. She's having a really good time with the coaches and the trainers and the whole Swim Canada team. That's tremendous. And you know what? Fun sometimes helps to bring a whole lot yeah, of success. Absolutely. And uh, success yeah. tends to bring fun, too. So they go yeah. nice and hand in hand. We heard from yeah. some of Maggie's former coaches with the London Aquatic Center yesterday and just some of the things that she does so well. The underwater dolphin kick, how long she's able to go or holding her breath at the end and, and getting those extra kicks in. From a parent's perspective, take us through Maggie's swim on Sunday night, what was it that you noticed, or or were you just on the edge of your seat the whole time? Well, I just, you know, I'm certainly not a swim expert, but you you, you pick a certain amount up by osmosis through all these years, right? And you know, I was, uh, you know, I was. Well, I mean, I was first struck by the fact she had she was going in sixth, which you know uh, gave me some reason for skepticism. Her very uh, her very confident uncle about her abilities thought that she could pull something big out, but I was I I'm not by nature a over optimist about these things so so that was um that was uh one thing but you know i knew that she'd been working this past year she had told me on the front half of the race so i knew if she could kind of maintain herself up with them um as she got to the wall now i know she she was seventh at the wall but it was by a very little you know so i knew that if she could kind of get that turn and get the power that she has in those legs going that there was a reasonable chance that you know she might be able to medal. But to be honest with you, I, I, I thought that the girl who was you know who came second would probably overpower her, and I thought we'd be, you know, she'd be she'd be really happy if she brought home a, a medal of any kind to Canada. But, um, but so when she when she hit number one and it came up on the screen, I tell you the the cottage on Amberley Beach uh, pretty much fell down. That's for sure. <laughs> What about her reaction? Because she has some of the best reactions <laughs> looking up at the scoreboard. And I mean, there it, at the Worlds, she was told that she won. She hadn't looked at the scoreboard yet, right? And then this time she looks up at the scoreboard. What did you make of that reaction of, oh, my God? I laughed. And then she squinted again to try and see if it was real, you know. I don't know. It's funny. I mean, she's never had any interest in contact lenses. So, uh, so I don't know whether that will ever be solved. But... Uh, she had got two new pairs of glasses just the week before to take away. And, uh, you know, in fact, I think I joked with, uh, she joked with Dr. Lawrence at that visit about, uh, about her eyes and she can't see these distances in the pool. But anyhow, she pretty almost had to ask Sarah Sostrom, I think, how she'd done. well tell her hey if she doesn't want to wear contact lenses we as fans will watch her reaction forever every time something happens in that pool it's amazing that was funny susan thanks so much for taking some time out for us again and enjoy everything else that is still to come yeah well thank you very much and thanks to to london i i do have to say that i uh will be forever touched by uh, the love and support that we've had from our many friends in London, but from the London community in general and from the London Aquatic Club. It's a, London is a pretty, pretty special place to live, and I think uh, we have felt uh, endlessly blessed by, our, by London as our city.
Wow. Thank you. That's that's amazing. And I don't know if you saw, but the London Aquatic Club, right immediately after Maggie's swim, within the, the next little while, had six people contact them about joining. <laughs> really? So Maggie is already cool. creating the next generation of Olympic swimmers. It's happening. Well, I guess, you know, that's a, that's an off, uh, off sp- uh, shoot of this that's, uh, that's terrific then. Yeah. What was it? We we don't even know this. What was it that got her to the London Aquatic Club? She was about eight years old. Yeah, she had. Uh, just to be quick, she she we took mums and tots when she was a little wee girl, less than a year, and then there was a young woman I forget her name now that taught her there, and she she suggested that she start taking lessons at Excel Swim School where this young woman taught. She went there, and from there they kind of moved her into a more sophisticated program, and then it was the XL people who introduced her to the London Aquatic Club when she was eight, and and, uh, and then uh, Andrew Craven was her most recent kind of head coach, and uh, and she really kind of, uh, really, it really worked well, that coaching relationship, and that, I think, you know, I've often said that she formed a relationship with him that, that really created a very healthy um a productive, you know, coach swimmer relationship and from that she was I think able to form these other these other meaningful relationships with coaches and she's she's just been blessed all the way along. Susan, the story is still still going. Can't wait to see where it goes next. Again, thanks for the time today and enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Okay. You be safe. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. That's Susan McNair. Maggie McNeil's mom, as we talk about some of the things that they have been dealing with over the last 36 hours, and yeah, there's, there is nothing like the ripple effect of a success like this, and if you think, oh, the Olympics, yeah, I get kind of tired of them, or, you know, we'll talk about the Prime Minister of Japan and some of his thoughts and concerns in just a moment, but the inspiration that comes out of something like this can't be measured. You don't even realize what it'll be until it actually happens. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.